Second Peter in chapter one, and uh, I want to look. I want to start there tonight again as we finish up our, our study on the tulip doctrine. As you're turning there, Second Peter chapter one, I've kind of taken the long way around in the study for a purpose. First, because I want you to see it in Scripture. It, it makes no difference what I say. It's what the Bible says. So if what I say squares up with Scripture, then we're good. If, if what I say doesn't square up with Scripture, for, for that matter, whoever, if it, whoever says it, if it doesn't square up with Scripture, then there's a problem. And I want you to see that in Scripture. So that's kind of why we've taken the long way around. And it's also best when you really have a full understanding of everything that's going on. So I, I pray that that's been the case and that it's been helpful and and uh, I want to finish that up tonight. So far we've seen um, that the belief of perseverance of the saint basically is if you're truly saved, you're never going to fall away. Um, if you do fall away, if you do sin big time, well, then you were never really saved in the first place. And we've been answering the question, does Scripture say that? Certainly the Bible says, yes, there's a change at salvation. We're given a new nature. We're a new creation. We are born again. Passed from death unto life, as Christ says. So yes, there's a change, definitely, with new desires, with a, a new nature within us, a new attitude. But we also saw that there's a call. There's a call to follow. Even Christ says that to people who have already uh, placed their faith. And he says, come follow me. And that's the same, script, uh, the same call Scripture gives to us today. We are to continue in the faith. The Word is supposed to produce fruit within us, and we are to bear fruit, showing that we are indeed His. But there is also mention in Scripture of those who don't bear fruit, those who, as, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, have swerved away. They were doing fine, and all of a sudden they took a hard right turn or a hard left turn, and they swerved. In fact, they made shipwreck of their faith. Things were going fine, and then all of a sudden they, everything was a mess because they didn't follow, they didn't continue. I want to I look a little bit more at that, and hopefully it becomes clear uh, to some things that we'll say. So you should be at Second Peter in chapter 1. Um, I want to pick it up. We're going to pick it up right in the middle of the discussion. Really don't have time for it tonight. If you get time, read it on your own. It's a beautiful book. Uh, but First Peter chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse 5, and we're going to read down through verse 11. First, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you, and abound... They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there again, just kind of um, um, supporting the, the foundation and the fact that there is a call, there is a, a walk we are to continue. See, he says here, add to your faith, which would be the first faith that we have. Add to your faith virtue. And the virtue knowledge is talking about growing. Growing in some things. Growing in the truth. Growing in the knowledge of the word. And that bringing temperance in our life and patience and leading to godliness and brotherly kindness and ultimately to love. There's a growth pattern there. Just as we said, as a newborn baby, as precious as they are and wonderful as they are, we want them to grow. We look forward to them growing. And if that growth doesn't happen, there's a problem. Well, it's the same spiritually. When we are saved, 
We're a newborn babe in Christ. And there is an expectation to grow, to add to these things as we, as Peter describes, taking in the milk of the word, that, that nourishing uh, um, aspect of the word as it causes us to grow. In fact, he says in verse 8, if these things are in you, if these fruits are in you, then you won't be barren, you won't be unfruitful in knowing Christ and walking with Christ. But there's a negative here. Okay. First and foremost, if you understand verse 8, if they're not in you, well, then there's a problem. Look at verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, there seems to be a lot of confusion about verse 9 there. What, what is he talking about when he says blind and cannot see and has forgotten? Well, many would say, well, see, they were never saved. If somebody is not producing this kind of fruit, and you don't see faith leading to virtue and virtue to knowledge, and et cetera, et cetera, you don't see all these things in a, a fruitful Christian, well, they must never have been saved. They're blind, as in they're blind and dead and lost in their sins, as 2 Corinthians 4 would say. But, beloved, I don't think that's what he's talking about. If you peel back the, the veil of the English language and you look to what this scripture, the scriptures were written in, is a different feeling. The Bibles we have are translated into English and the New Testament was written in Greek. Now You don't have to be a scholar. You can just get what's called a Strong's Word Concordance and you can find this out on your own. You don't have to take my word for it. But some of the words that we have in English mean something different or something greater. The example would be love. Love has many definitions in the Greek. It talks about family love or a friendly love or the self-sacrificial love, agape love, maybe as you've heard. Well, this word for blind, we think of somebody who can't see at all. But the Greek word is a bit different. The Greek word means smoky or misty. Well, I'm sure you've been in fog before. Maybe you've driven through it or maybe you've walked through it. I've, I've been in fog um, so thick you can't hardly see a couple feet in front of your uh, face. But you could still see. I could still see the path. I could still see dim shapes, although it wasn't perfect, clear vision. It was not as the times I've been in a cave that's so black, uh, no light gets in, and you can't see anything, and you can feel the darkness, which is what we think of when we think of blind. The, the, the word that Peter uses is not there, is not that. It's smoky, misty, veiled. And in fact, he says in the next phrase, He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. Well, we understand that nearsighted. I'm nearsighted. If I don't have my contacts in, I can't see... <laughs> Much of anything other than a blur very far off from my face. Well, that's the term that he uses here. Somebody that is not producing these things, is not building these things into their life, it's as if their spiritual vision is misty or nearsighted. They can't see afar off. They don't have clear spiritual vision. And in fact, 
he goes a step further. He says he hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. It's that phrase that leads me to believe he's not talking about somebody who doesn't know Christ as Savior. He's talking about somebody that has been separated. He didn't say he was never purged from his old sins. It says he hath forgotten that he was. Well, you know what? Listen, that was a pretty big moment in my life, and it's been about 30 years ago that I was saved. I was saved when I was just a young boy, eight years old. And that was 30 years ago, but you know what? I've never forgot it. Can somebody really get so far away from God that they can forget their salvation? I don't know, perhaps, but I do know this. There's been times in my life I've forgotten the joy that it brought. I've forgotten the radical change that it has brought when I've, when I've drifted away from God more than I should have and maybe not been in the right place with Him. I've had to pray as David does in Psalm 51, Lord, restore unto me the joy of Thy salvation. You know what? I think Peter's warning us that if we don't continually stay close to God and we don't build these things in our lives, then our spiritual vision, our walk with God can become smoky, misty, nearsighted, and we can forget the, the joy and the change and the new life that He's brought to us. In fact, we can become barren and unfruitful. Now listen, if you're honest with yourself, maybe there's been times in your own life you've felt barren or unfruitful. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Let's see if I can remember it. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, meekness, patience. And there's a couple other in there. I'm sure that I can't remember offhand in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. There's times you haven't felt peaceful as you should or loving as you should or joyful or patient as you should. I'm sure all of us have that. Well, could you say maybe in your life as in mine, our vision was a little misty, smoky, nearsighted. So we already see that, yes, somebody who's saved can drift away. And they lose out on some things. In fact, the, the, the call from Peter in verse 10 is, wherefore, make your calling and election sure. Well, how do you do that? For if you do these things, you shall never fall. If you keep growing in the word, your calling, follow me, your election, you are my people, will be sure. If we don't follow Him, then we drift away from being part of His chosen ones. And we'll define who that is here in just a couple minutes. If you do these things, you shall never fall. If you don't do these things, well then, we could fall. We could swerve. We could make shipwreck of our faith. And ultimately the promise is in verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen, let me just say this now. I don't know if we're going to have time to get to it or not. But there, every child of God goes into the kingdom of God without a doubt, period. If you've been washed in the blood of Christ and your sins have been forgiven, your home is the kingdom. But there are some who will have an abundant entrance, rewards and faithful uh, faithfulness to Him bring rewards. And there will some who will be saved, yet so as by fire. We'll try to de uh, define that here in just a couple minutes. So we already see that this is not, this idea that if you're 
truly saved, you're never going to fall. That's not quite squaring up with Scripture. Turn in, your Bible, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. Actually, excuse me, Mark chapter 4. Same account, just a different place. Mark chapter 4. This is one, uh, the parable of the soils, that is used as an example. That the, the word can be preached and people can falsely believe. And the fact that they drift away is proof that they never truly believed in the first place. Now listen, I'm not going to argue with anyone that there can be false professions. But what I will say is what Scripture says, that maybe there's something else going on uh, when someone drifts away. doesn't mean necessarily that they weren't saved. Mark chapter 4, again, for time's sake, I don't have time to read the whole thing. Um, basically, Jesus tells a parable about a sower who goes out and he, he gives examples of four different soils. And the people hearing would understand it. It was an agricultural society, uh, something we've, we don't really understand too much. But he gives an explanation for us, and I want to pick that up in verse 13. Mark chapter 4 and verse 13. Now, I'm sure... Any of us who have spent time around the Bible understand, or excuse me, are familiar with this parable, but we need to understand the importance of it. And here's what Jesus says. Verse 13, He said unto them, Know ye not this parable? How then will ye know all parables? This is a key. The parable of the soils is a key to actually all the rest of the parables and much of the teaching of Jesus because it's speaking about the heart of man and the reception of the word. So let's see what Jesus says when he is explaining this parable to his church, his disciples. Verse 14, the sower soweth the word. So all this, this talk about seed is, is a representation of the Bible as it is preached and the spirit going with the preaching and what the, the work of the word that it does in our hearts. Verse 15, these are the, excuse me, these are they by the wayside, the road where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. So he gave the example of a sower going along and just sowing out. Some fell on the, sto on, on the pathway, the wayside, where people would walk through the fields and some would fall on the, the portion of stony ground and some would fall on a place with weeds and some would fall on a patch that is good ground. That's the, the four examples that he's given. And he says the ones that fell on the wayside where everybody walked is one that hears the word the word is preached, but immediately Satan comes and takes it away. Listen, don't think Satan is idle in his working. Every time the gospel is preached, whether it be in person in a sanctuary or even now as in preaching on this over Facebook on the Internet and people will listen to it later or watch it later, Satan's going to do what he can. I've already had comments on some of our videos that were disgusting. Out there trying to... <laughs> Take away the word. And there is a work of Satan and his demons that works in some people's hearts that when the word is sown and, be, and, and it falls and, and they hear the gospel preached, it does best to take it away. The, the seed never takes root. It never does anything. It never penetrates. In fact, Luke records Jesus saying in his account of this, lest they believe and be saved. The seed is taken away lest they believe and be saved. There's some people, the gospel falls on a hard heart or Satan working to keep them blinded. 
These never believe. These are not saved. Those who are uh, hearts are compared to those by the wayside. Let's continue on and see the other examples in verse 16. And these are they likewise which are stone, sown on stony ground, ground with rocks, you know, full of stones, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness and have no root in themselves and so endure for but a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Offended. Matthew records in his account that they spring up rather quickly. Notice they receive it. They receive it with gladness. Let's keep reading it, and we'll come back and touch on these. In verse 18, And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. Matthew and Luke both add and receive it. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. So, well, let's finish up verse 20. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. So now he gives a group of three examples of which the word takes root and it produces. Both the, uh, excuse me, all of the stony ground, the thorny ground, if you want to call it that, the weed infested ground is what it is, and the good ground, the seed all takes root and it produces, but different things happen. The stony ground would uh, produce shoots really fast, but the soil is shallow. And he says up in verse 6, When the sun was up, it was scorched, it had no root, and it withered away. Listen, I've tried to plant gardens. <laughs> it doesn't work. At the houses I've had, and I've tried to make them all neat, and you try to get all the, the rocks out and till the ground, and I've tried, but man, I, I can't do it. There's a, a young lady in our church, Sister Marlem, she can plant just about anything and she can grow just about anything. I don't have that gift. I've had stuff when I've planted it. It took off really quick like flowers. And then as soon as the sun came up, just like the scripture says, boom, they're gone. What happened? Well, it had a shallow root. And listen, there's some believers like that. It takes the, the, the seed of the word takes root and they're saved. They receive it with gladness. That's what it said. They receive it with gladness and all of a sudden, man, they're on fire. But they never put down roots. Their faith is not, um, to their faith is not added virtue and knowledge and temperance and all those things we read in Second Peter. They're not putting root down. They're not spending time studying in the Word. Let, let me just say, brethren, beloved, I think most of mainstream Christianity will fall into this category people are saved and man they're on fire but they don't really ever put down roots and so when hard times come they're gone they're gone in the bad times when things get hard they leave or they're withered away you know there's a lot of people who are having a hard time with what we're going through right now. And they're asking questions like, how could God 
do this? How could God let this happen to me? How could he, why is he on and on and on? And their faith, because it hasn't taken deep root, is wavering. Yes, there are many more people thinking about God, I think, than they have in a long time, but there's a lot of Christians who are losing their solid ground because they were never rooted in Him. And Jesus said that was going to happen. Now, does that make them not saved? No. It makes them not rooted. They never put down roots. And so you know what? They fall. Their sight becomes misty as we looked at the first scripture we looked at. Let's look at the other example. Verse 18, These are they which are sown among thorns, and such as hear the word, cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, the lusts of other things, entering in, choke the word, and becometh unfruitful. In all of my garden planting, that has been the number one enemy. Man, weeds, weeds, or the little grass that grows in there. I've, I've tried to plant flowers and make it all pretty. And, it's, and I've even put down the bark and, and all that stuff. And, and within about a month, here they come, all these little shoots, and you got to sit there and, and be on top of it and pick out each one, because if not, then all of a sudden you got a lawn in your garden patch, and it's almost impossible to, to get out, and it begins to affect the other plants, right? Well, Jesus says there are some hearts like that. The word takes root and it produces, but there's weeds. What kind of weeds? Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, the lusts or desires of other things. They enter in and because they're not taken out, they choke the word and it becomes. You see that there? It becomes unfruitful. It was fruitful. It becomes unfruitful. It, take root, it took root. It produced fruit and now it becomes unfruitful because of the other things choked it out. Other desires. You know, good times can be just about as detrimental as bad times. This is a Christian, a church member even, who gets lazy in the good times and relaxes and his heart is drawn or her heart is drawn away towards other things. Well, Instead of adding to their faith virtue and their virtue knowledge and growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, their heart begins to wander. You know what happens? The other things enter in and they begin to take uh, um, precedence over and take, um, they take over. How about that? Instead of the word being primary, other things are and the word becomes unfruitful. Doesn't mean they lost their salvation. No, it means they were fruitful. Other things got in and it choked it out. And finally, we have the last one. These are they which are sown on good ground. They hear the word, receive it. They continue in it and it bringeth forth fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. We're not farmers. We don't understand that. That's, that's an amazing astronomical crop producing. Let's, let me tell you right now, when this word gets in your heart, and it takes root, and you feed it, and you, you stay in it, man, it will produce results in you that you could have never imagined, leading up to an abundant entrance to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. Only one seed in this parable has no fruit of all. That's by the wayside because it never penetrates. The other three do, but something happens. One is good ground, the other two 
get distracted. I don't think those are lost people. I think those are Christians who wander away, get drawn away, not losing their salvation, losing the fruit. Becoming, as Second Peter says, blind, nearsighted, and forgetting the impact their salvation has. I hope that makes sense. I hope that um, helps to, to clear some things up. There's a couple other passages I'd like to go to, and we'll see where we can get for time. I don't want to hold you too awfully long this evening. Um, but I think probably for me, this is the clearest um, indicator or explanation of a call to follow and consequences whether we follow or not, regardless of, uh, uh, well, not regardless. Those who are saved should follow Him, and there are consequences or rewards if we do or do not. And that's at the end of the book, Revelation. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. Now, we're going to play a hopscotch because I don't have time to go through it, but hopefully it will be clear enough. I want you to see something Jesus Himself says. As He writes uh, letters to the churches in this book of Revelation. He writes letters to these local churches. Again, some would say the church is this um, invisible body made of all the saved. Well, why didn't he write one letter? He writes seven letters to seven local bodies. That's how the church is. The church as an institution is always a local, visible, called out assembly of believers. Make no mistake, what we're doing here is not church. We're doing the best we can. We're rolling with the circumstances we got right now. And we'll see how long we do that. But this is no replacement. No replacement. It is a poor substitute for meeting together as a body, singing hymns together as a body, communion, taking communion as a body, baptizing new members, which, by the way, we might just do that here pretty soon as to, to my local church body. We've got one who is professing salvation, wants to be baptized. Praise the Lord. The church is a local called out assembly and Jesus here is writing letters to those churches and he says something very special to those people. Those who have followed him, first of all, they're saved. They have followed him in baptism. They're trying to serve him in that, in that capacity of the church, which what, that's what we've been saying all along. That's what the New Testament assumes. I, know, I want you to notice what he says. So let's play hopscotch real quick. Chapter 2. In verse 11, I, what I want to do is I want to look at the ending statement of each letter because it's really important. Jesus gives instructions um, or encouragement, but He ends the letter with something special. He says it to each church. Revelation 2 and verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's going to be the operative phrase. To him that overcometh, to him who overcomes. That word in the Greek means victory. To have victory, to conquer something, to rule over something. 
It's the word Nico, as in Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. Well, that's his Greek name. He probably had a Hebrew name, but we know him by his Greek name, Nicodemus, ruling over people. And there's another phrase used in the letters, Nicolaitans. It means to rule over, to rule over somebody. He who rules over, he who conquers, he who has the victory. And we'll show what here in just a couple minutes. But I want you to notice the promises to the him that overcometh. He will eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. Verse 26. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 3 and verse 4. Revelation 3 and 4 says this, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which is the church he's writing to, which have not defiled their garments. For they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Ch uh, verse 12, chapter 3 and verse 12. To him that overcometh I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. The one that blows my mind is in verse 21. My favorite promise of Scripture, Revelation 3, 21, To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and in set down with my Father in His throne. You sit and you think about what that means for a bit. <laughs> to sit with Christ on His throne as Christ sits on the Father's throne, the very throne of heaven, to Him that overcometh. These are very special promises. To Him who overcomes, there are promises. To those who are victorious, well, what do they overcome? Well, if you spend time to read the letters, you get the picture. Not just false teachers, not just persecution, although that is a struggle they faced, and we face to some extent. But there's also talked about in here, in these letters, apathy. You're neither hot nor cold. I will spew thee out of my mouth. Uh, the Laodicean church, right? Pride, Ephesus, sin, some of the churches had allowed sin in. Hmm. Overcoming over false teaching, overcoming over sin, overcoming over pride, over apathy, isn't that exactly what the New Testament and, yes, the rest of the Bible tells us to do? 
Follow me. Continue in the faith. Add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance. If you do these things, you'll never fall. An abundant entrance will be ministered unto you. Let your heart be that good ground where the seed takes root and it produces 30, 60, 100 fold. It's just producing fruit. Walk worthy of the vocation where which you have been called. Continue in the faith, grounded and settled. That's some of what Scripture says. And if you do that, and if you have the victory over those things, there are some promises. Some promises. Well, what? how do these promises come true? Let's read the end of all things, and we'll go as far as we can in just a couple minutes. Revelation 19. Turn there if you would, please. We're fast-forwarding to the end of time. Well, we're fast-forwarding to the end of the end days here in Revelation 19. The tribulation has come. The Antichrist has ruled for three and a half years of peace and nearly three and a half years of of, uh, tyranny. He's hunted down all those that would name the name of Christ. And something amazing is about to happen. The rapture has happened, I believe, already by this point. He has caught his faithful away to him. And it's going to tell about some wonderful things here. And I want you to see them and see if we can't plug some things in here with what we've already read. Revelation 19 and verse 6, if you would, please. And we'll move quickly. But I, I hope it's clear. I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and the voice of many waters and the voice of many thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This is all of heaven praising God. I can only imagine what that will sound like. And they say, let us be glad and rejoice, verse 7, and give honor to Him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and His wife hath made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb is come. His wife hath made herself ready. Listen, this is where we talk about the concept of a bride. His wife, his bride has made herself ready. That's not a New Testament concept. That's not a new concept. In Isaiah, the Lord Himself says, For thy maker is thy husband. I have called you when you were refused to be a wife. Jeremiah chapter 3, I am married to you, O Israel. Jeremiah 31, I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. It's not a new concept. He called His people in the Old Testament Israel His bride. The New Testament clarifies this as well. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says this. Paul says this as a pastor as he was the pastor over Corinth, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ. Let me just tell you from a pastor's heart, that is exactly what I want for my church. I want to present each one of them as a, as a pure bride to Christ, for Him and Him alone. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, This is a great mystery when he's talking about the husband and wife. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's not hard to understand. Who is this wife that has made herself ready? It's his people. It's his people. It is said of Israel. It is said of the church. Those who are in that covenant relationship with him. Those who are following him, faithful to him. 
those whom he has chosen, those whom he has elected, his people. Israel is my wife. The church is my bride. They are my faithful people whom I have chosen. I have chosen them and not others. The call to be part of that people is open to all, but that's whom he has elected, his chosen ones. It says she's made herself ready, right? His wife hath made herself ready. Well, how? How? Verse 8. And to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and what? White. Clean and white. To him that overcometh shall walk with me in white. There is a few names in Sardis that has not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy to him who overcometh. It goes on to say, to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints, the holy acts of the holy ones, those who continue, those who follow, those who add to their faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, and knowledge temperance. For if you do these things, you shall never fall, and it shall make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful, and so... An abundant entrance shall be ministered unto you, to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see where these things are starting to connect now? The promises of God. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are called... If you want to understand what that means, you can go to the parables of Jesus when he says the kingdom of heaven is like five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. Uh, five were ready, five were not. Luke 22 says he called and some refused, so he called others and brought them in. And There are people that can refuse the call. Let's fast forward to Revelation 20. We simply don't have time for the rest. I want you to see these things, at least uh, to put seeds in your mind if I could. Revelation 21, 20 and 1, verse 1, excuse me. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. That thousand years is when Jesus Christ is going to rule on this earth as King Supreme. After that, he must be loosed a little season. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. To him who overcometh, I will give him the right to rule over the nations. Do you remember that? Thrones were given to them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5, but the rest of the dead lived not. You see that. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. These overcomers who are part of the first resurrection rule and reign with Christ. 
It says they are blessed. They are holy, those righteous deeds of the saints. They are overcomers. The rest of the dead do not live. Why do we assume that that's all the lost? It doesn't say that, does it? It just says the rest of the dead. And it makes... uh, it, t- it pays careful attention that these are holy and righteous ones. These are the overcomers. These are the continuers. These are the followers. And the second death hath no power over them, the Scripture says. Well, let's fast forward a little bit to verse 11. This is the great white throne after Jesus has reigned, ruled and reigned for a thousand years. Then comes the end of time as we know it. And at that end of time is a great white throne. I saw the great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and where was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Listen, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Let me just give some simple principles. It says, I saw the dead, small and great. didn't say, I saw the lost. There seems to be a distinction made from those who are delivered up from death and hell. And then there are those, those who are just simply dead, small and great. And it says, books were opened along with the book of life. Listen, let me tell you right now, somebody who, who uh, rejects Christ as Savior, somebody who is not saved, has only one book to be judged by, that is the book of life, where our name is written once we believe in Him. Whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life, verse 15, was cast into the lake of fire. So what are these other books that he's talking about? I believe it's these 66 right here that you hold in your hand. And who would be judged on those? Would a lost person be judged on how, we should, how they should have lived or how they should have followed? No. They will be judged only whether or not they believed on Christ as Savior or not. But those who are saved will be judged by what He has written us here. Did you follow? Did you add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance? There's no... There is a foundation laid that no other man can lay, and that is Jesus Christ. And each man will build on it his works. Some will build wood, hay, and stubble. Some will build gold, silver, and precious stones. Some will follow and be faithful, and some will not. Will this day coming when we will stand before Christ, and His glory will burn away anything that is not holy. And those that have not built upon the foundation what they should have, They will be saved, yet so as by fire. I think that's what he's talking about here. There are saved people who will miss out on things. They won't get to, they won't be one of those overcomers. Oh, they'll be with, uh, they'll, they'll be with Christ and they'll have eternal life forever, but they won't have the special promises that are given here. We could go on through the rest of chapter 21 and 22 and Just connect some more dots, but let me simply say (laughs) there's a call to follow in Scripture. There's a call to be part of His people. There's a 
There's a call to be faithful to Him. And those who are faithful to Him and follow Him, those are His chosen ones. And yes, you can be saved. And yes, there is a change. And yes, salvation is wonderful. But there's more. There's growth. There's a continuing walking with Him that we are called to. And in fact, that we will be judged to. If you've been saved, have you followed Him? Have you given your life to Him? Identifying with Him in baptism and being part of His people and just living as best you can? If you do, the Scripture says you're an overcomer. If you don't, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation. You just lose out on some promises that are here that He gives to us, that He wants us to, to have and that He calls us to. The saints are those who persevere. Somebody is saved and cannot persevere. Somebody can fall away. Even saints can fall away. But His chosen ones, His faithful ones, those who follow Him, are the ones who inherit the riches of His grace and all that He would give. And we can follow that or we cannot. And the choice is up to us. It's not something that's forced upon us. So, I believe, yes, there's a great change of salvation, but there's a call to follow, and there's great and wonderful promises if we would follow Him. Not everybody does. Some people fall away. And if we don't, if we don't understand that kind of principle when we look at the New Testament... We're going to come up with error. In fact, I think Calvinism and its whole system is from, uh, from that kind of an error to, to not see the church and the call to follow and the promises that are given to those who overcome, to those who are faithful. So I, I pray that's been helpful. I pray that maybe it's um, clarified some things and, and uh, that's been beneficial. So... That's going to conclude our study in uh, looking at the tulip doctrine. And uh, again, I just.